Hey everybody, welcome to the Colored Red Podcast. My name is Laura, and this is a podcast that's all about Colorado true crime. I do apologize for the delay this week. It has been a crazy week, and then I had some equipment breaks, so I'm happy to be finally recording this today. And if there's any noise in the background, I really apologize, because I think my neighbors are currently in the middle of a stomping and furniture slamming competition, so that's what you're going to be hearing in the background, and I can't do anything about it. So, what a crazy week it's been Um, with this this woman coming from Florida and all that. um, She was just found today. Unfortunately, she had apparently shot herself, and that's a sad situation, and I'm very sorry that that happened, but... Our schools can go on tomorrow, I guess, and hope that we're safe. So that's the good news about it. Um, I've had a few people ask me if I'm going to be doing a Columbine episode, probably ever, and the, pro- the answer to that is no. Um, I have a few reasons for that, but I think that all that can possibly be said has been said about the Columbine shooting. There's nothing more that I could possibly add to the conversation that I think is worthwhile, so... It's something that I'm just going to let be. And in terms of like the Aurora shooting and all that, I knew people in that shooting and it's just, it's not something that I want to really bring up. And again, on the same lines of a shooting, there's really not a whole lot that can be said about it that hasn't already been said. So I will not be doing a Columbine episode or an Aurora theater shooting episode. What I will be doing is my episode today, which... If you're, I've got a bunch of new listeners, which is awesome. And if you're new to the show, what I end up doing is I do a middle of the month episode about a historical murder that doesn't necessarily have a ton of information about it or enough information about it to make into a full episode. And it's murders from Colorado's past that I still want to talk about. They involve a good deal of history and I still wanted to bring them up in the show. And then at the end of the month, I do a more heavily researched recent case. So that's sort of the format of the show. I do have an Instagram if you all want to go check it out. I post updates about when episodes will be out, if there's any delays. And I have um, pictures uploaded for every single episode that I do. Any kind of picture I can find associated with it. And I'll also post some strange Colorado facts and other things on there from time to time. So go check it out at Colored Red Podcast. So on with the episode today. Denver, 1911. By 1911, Denver High Society was in full swing. Anyone of any kind of financial means clung desperately to their high society titles, and they did things like talked in hushed tones and parlors about the melodrama going on that threatened their very reputations and their families. And many people of limited means clawed upwards for a chance to rub elbows in chandelier-lit rooms, and it's safe to say that a few of those people might kill for the chance to do it. And it's definitely safe to say that one woman did. On September 25, 1911, Gertrude Gibson Patterson was accused of the murder of her husband, Charles A. Patterson. Much of the public demanded to know how and why Gertie did it. Much of high society denounced any of the, quote, sordid, nauseous details that may be revealed, which could threaten the foundations of high society in Denver. But the papers and the the newspapers, rather, were desperate to have the 
go at this story. And they put this um, go-to-the-limit order on all the editors and cartoonists and journalists that if any story was scooped, then whoever it was scooped from was pretty much out of a job. So with this, the papers exploded. And the life and purpose of the beautiful Gertrude Gibson Patterson was revealed. She had a certain power over men, which would be made clear as the trial progressed. And she apparently had had it since childhood. Gertrude was born in the small town of Sandoval, Illinois. And at the age of 13, she was removed from school for conduct pertaining to morality. Shortly after this, and long before her 18th birthday, she eloped in Chicago with this saloon keeper. Her father was naturally pretty upset about all this, and he persuaded the town marshal to bring Gertrude back, which the marshal actually went and did. She was only briefly reunited with her family before she left again with her sister for St. Louis, Missouri. But she didn't stick around there either. She made her way to Chicago again and met a man old enough to be her grandfather named Emil W. Strauss. Strauss was a wealthy old man, and he soon became her benefactor, which is a more professional way of saying her sugar daddy. Her parents now saw that there wasn't a whole lot that they could do with her, and they couldn't really stop her from doing what she wanted to do. So they gave her permission to go with Emil to Europe and join a convent school in France. There, she mastered the French language and refined herself socially while she traveled extensively all over Europe. On Emil Strauss's dime, she acquired a designer wardrobe and jewels and all of the experiences of a very high-class woman, which she was at the time. After four years, she and Emil returned to Chicago, where they lived in the finest hotel in Chicago at that time, which was the Auditorium Hotel. And this was near a country club that they also frequented. Emil bought her an electric car, which she would drive to and from an amusement park named Sands Susie Park. At this park, on a skating rink, and in a scene that's almost out of a movie here, she met a man who was decades younger than Emil Strauss, and younger than even she, and his name was Charles A. Patterson. The curious thing about Charles was that he wasn't really a man of means. He was a teacher in Chicago public schools before becoming a clerk for a printing press. He had no family connections, no social prestige, and no money. What he did have, though, was youth and good looks and the ability to love Gertrude. Gertrude and Charles frequently met at the amusement park while she was living with Emil, and she explained her situation to Charles. One evening, she told him that she was going to California and slipped him a $100 bill and a train ticket and told him to meet her there so that they could be married. She promised that her relationship with Emil was going to be ended. And so not long later, at the beachside of Carmel-by-the-Sea in California, Gertrude and Charles were married. During the brief time that they were separated for travel, he would write her long letters, one in which he declared, Rain, snow, and sunshine, I shall always love you and only you. For a brief while, everything was bliss, and I mean brief. So then the honeymoon ended. They went back to Chicago and moved in with Charles's mother, which, following the pomp of her previous life in France, was not an arrangement that Gertrude really approved of. 
So Gertrude left and found a fully furnished high society apartment and Charles moved in with her without him becoming suspicious of where she was getting the funds to pay for this apartment. So three months after moving into the apartment, she told Charles that she was leaving to visit her sister in St. Louis, Missouri. Charles, knowing his only um, limited financial means and hers as well, or, or so he thought, was obviously suspicious. And at this moment, he wondered, how was she paying for this trip, much less how was she paying for the apartment that they were living in? So he made the right move next, and he asked her about it, and she admitted that she was still being funded by Emil Strauss, and that she wasn't going to visit her sister at all. She was headed to Europe with Emil because she felt indebted to him, and she felt like she needed to act as his interpreter because she was fluent in French. Charles didn't buy this, but she went anyway, and as the weeks passed, he got incredibly angry. So much so that he went to procure the passenger manifest for the ship they took. And on this, he noted that Gertrude and Emil had stayed in the same suite, meaning they had the one bed, and that they were listed as a Mr. and Mrs. He wired her in Europe after discovering this and told her that if she didn't return, he would come to Europe and kill both of them. So she returned. Upon her return... Charles came down with pneumonia suddenly and then tuberculosis and he and his mother moved to, can you guess which city? Seattle. No, I'm kidding. It was Denver, Denver, Colorado. And they started a treatment um, for this tuberculosis. So Charles entered the Agnes Memorial Sanitarium, sometimes called the Phipps Sanitarium. This sanitarium was a large building located near Six and Quebec, and it was a popular destination for tuberculosis patients for a long time until it was bought as a part of the Lowry Air Force Base and turned into a barracks called Building 256, and then it was demolished. But Gertrude had some love for Charles, actually, and she moved out to Denver herself and visited Charles regularly in the hospital. She grew very tired of slogging out to Lowry to visit her husband, who would never fully recover. And again, this um, hospital at that time was surrounded by absolutely nothing. It was just planes out there. And all of this waiting around and visiting her husband in a sanitarium wasn't really her high society style. So Gertrude filed for a divorce, and when Charles received the divorce papers, he filed a lawsuit against Emil Strauss, seeking $25,000 for alienation of affections of his wife. When Gertrude learned of the lawsuit against Emil, who was at that time paying for her lifestyle in Denver, she was completely enraged. So, Gertie got her gun. She got the gun from a man after convincing him that Charles was beating her and that she feared for her life. Two days after procuring this gun, she telephoned Charles and asked him to meet her near the sanitarium at a house called the Richthofen Castle, built in 1887 by a German man named Baron Walter von Richthofen, which incidentally is mere blocks from where I'm currently recording this episode. I'll post some pictures up on the Instagram of what this place looks like now. So, clutching the arm of Charles, Gertrude walked him down the tree-lined path on the mansion property and argued about the lawsuit. Then Gertrude pulled her gun and shot at Charles four times. Two shots missed and two hit him, killing him. 
She then ran to the house and told the maids who answered that Charles had gotten angry, beaten her, and then he had committed suicide with the gun. Though later she would change this story because it made little sense with the four shots. And she'd change her story to say that she fired in self-defense. Police showed up and the police surgeon examined the body and they talked with Gertrude who admitted that she shot Charles after he slapped her and spit on her. Gertrude was arrested for the murder of her husband. The trial that would follow was just as sensationalistic as many of the other major trials in Denver at that time, and strangely enough, articles about the trial from that time were heavily focused on the beauty of Gertrude Gibson Patterson. One article described her as having large brown eyes glowing in the face of childlike loveliness, a charming figure and tiny hands that remained clasped. Other papers went further calling her the prettiest woman to stand trial for murder in Denver, and many had headlines calling her the Denver Dresden Doll. The first couple of days of the trial were dedicated to jury selection, and at this time, women were not allowed to stand on a jury. Despite Colorado being a relatively progressive state for women at that time, as it was just the second state behind Wyoming to grant women the right to vote in 1893. Even the jury selection was sensationalized, calling the jury a group of plain, healthy American men with family responsibilities, who just wanted truth and justice, and who were not to be swayed by beauty and chains. One witness was the caretaker at the Erichtofen mansion, who testified that he saw not a fight, that he saw her hand Charles a piece of paper, him read it and hand it back, and then her shoot at him four times. Newspapers the next morning ran the headline, It's 30 for Gertie, referring to the sentence that she would likely be receiving if she was convicted. And they again focused largely on her beauty. The Denver Post wrote, She drew such a vivid picture of innocence and beauty, betrayed as to wring the heart of the most cynical railbird at trial. As Ella Wella Wilcox, famed poet, might put it, Leave her to karma which only knows truth and justice. Gertrude herself took the stand, and in a very soft-spoken manner, nearly a whisper, knowing the entire room was near infatuation with her, she gave the account of her beatings and mental anguish, which Charles Patterson was the cause of. And you have to suspect it all, as he was either in a different country or in the hospital for much of their relationship. She said that he convinced her to sell her electric car and invest in a print shop for him, and that she gave him the money from the car, which he then squandered. Then a very curious thing happened at the trial. The defense threw a curveball on the last day and called a mysterious witness, a man named Francis J. Easton. This witness was not on the books, and yet the judge allowed it anyway, even though the prosecution wasn't aware of this witness. He testified to have seen the altercation himself from nearly 300 yards away, and he verified Gertrude's story that Charles attacked her. He could give no explanation to why he didn't intervene or approach in any of this. And after this, closing statements were given and Gertrude exited so a verdict could be reached. She made a statement indicating that she believed she was being persecuted unfairly, and that her mistakes are being used against her, and that she learned justice rarely prevails that day. She stated that she didn't care what happened. 
Then the moment came for the verdict, and Gertrude sat silent, with her hands clasped in her lap. The judge read the verdict. Not guilty. Jurors rushed Gertrude after the trial to wish her well and to let her know that the testimony of this supposed 300-yard witness was the thing that pushed them over the edge and convinced them that Gertrude had not done this. So keep in mind, these are jurors in the trial that she was just exonerated in. And so these jurors were convinced, not by the um, eyewitness testimony of the actual caretaker, but by this man 300 yards away. So as Gertrude left, she walked to the street. She was met with jeers and taunts, and she went to go pawn $2,000 worth of diamonds and went into the seclusion of her hotel room. The prosecution filed a complaint to the Bar Association about the surprise witness who was allowed to give such a ludicrous testimony, and they went in search of this witness who had disappeared, some say as a much richer man. Following this, the Denver Post reported that Emil Strauss and Gertrude Patterson had died on the 1912 sinking of the Titanic. This was followed by a report from the Rocky Mountain News accusing the Denver Post of making up stories to sell papers. And it is a fact that neither the name Emil Strauss nor Gertrude Patterson were on the manifest for the Titanic. The other fact is, though, that the known whereabouts and pseudonyms of Gertrude Patterson end in 1912. And that's the episode for today, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll have some pictures for you up on the Instagram for this episode. And stay tuned for my end of the month episode. Until then, everybody.